now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Lennox, psychologist, astrologer, YouTuber, and dream expert. Dr. Lennox has a master's and a doctorate in psychology. He's the author of three books on dreams, and he leads classes, workshops, and retreats all over the U.S., Dr. Lennox, thank you so much for being my guest today and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's start here. Can people be visited by other people on the other side during their dreams? Absolutely. Now, we don't have any ability to prove that scientifically, but one of the things that is very interesting about hearing dreams over many, many decades and hearing thousands of them is that you begin to notice something very consistent about the dreams that people report where someone who has passed away has visited them. And they're so distinct from regular dreams that there has to be some distinction about what these events are. So when someone is having a dream that we would call a visitation, it's almost always a very singular setting. Um, very often the bedroom of the, of, the, of the dreamer, of the sleeper. And the presence in the room of the person who has passed is usually not active. Sometimes they don't even speak words, but there's a conveyance and the conveyance or the words, if there are any, are something fundamental like love or lovingness or all is well. Or sometimes it's just a beatific smile and it's like grandma's here and it feels a certain way. And the reportage of this is this singular kind of scenario where dreams are chaotic and crazy. So I distinguish them on that level uh, from each other, that the chaotic dream and a visitation dream. The other thing that's impossible not to notice, Jeffrey, over the years is watching people talk about how such a dream impacted them. Very often, these visitation dreams are so profound that the dreamer is transformed. They get a sense of connection that before that moment, they didn't quite have the sensation of either belief or even just the experience to, to have the sense of belief in that possibility. That means to me more than anything else, that when people say they were transformed by an experience, it has to have more juice. Otherwise, why would it be so transformative for the dreamer? Can we astral travel or have an out-of-body experience while dreaming? You know, I would say this, that what is happening in sleep is the body is experiencing its sort of version of, uh, you know, symbolic death. Right? It, it, in fact, in REM sleep, where we're most activated in the brain, the body is paralyzed, like cannot move, partly for safety, <laughs> because we would act out all of those impulses right. that the frontal cortex is sort of, you know. Um, so being somebody who has had a lifelong meditation practice and, and, and done thousands of hours of, you know, clearing trauma, self-investigation, enough to sort of have a nice, clean and clear instrument, I certainly know that it's possible to have experiences that are, in fact, out of the body. And the only thing that inhibits that perception is our thinking mind, the rational mind that either can't believe it or it has thoughts of doubt and is not the area of the consciousness that's having that experience. It's the area that's narrating the experience. So the narrator is always going to say, is this real? <laughs> but that narrator is asleep when we are sleeping. 
that separation mechanism that looks at everything and says something to you about it is not conscious. And so we are free energetically to have experiences. Uh, and again, the reportage piece, Jeffrey, if I hear enough people telling me stories of having nighttime experiences where it was not like a dream, but actually like they felt like they were leaving their body and seeing remotely other visages, um, then I have to put those things together. Even though I haven't had phenomenal out-of-body experiences in astral way, um, that experience is, you know, uh, has eluded me. But I've heard enough to 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 answer equivocally and certainly to your audience. Yeah, of course, man. It's the best place to have every intuitive, magical, mystical human experience because that thinking mind that negates is asleep. Do you think that their consciousness is leaving the body and going somewhere or they're in a realm of like, you know, once their body is paralyzed in sleep, they just kind of enter another dimension? I love this question. I will tell you that just you asking that question makes my like energetic sense of channeling wisdom spin. And what the answer that floods into me as you ask the question is we're already connected. We are already there. We are already in a multidimensional experience right here, right now. We cannot perceive that, but it's happening because we are multidimensional beings. So I, if that feels profoundly true to me and in, a, in an embodied way, that it has to be that we don't leave our bodies. We just open up to the multidimensional consciousness that we're actually already connected to. We just remove the blinders to it. What about sleep paralysis? Because a lot of people have it and I think they get even PTSD from yeah. it. They oh, don't know how to handle it. Yeah. What kind of advice would you give those people? Well, I will say this, the people who are experiencing this as a, you know, a bona fide sort of sleep, um, you know, uh, uh, challenge, it, it's brutal. It's brutal. So let me just talk first about what it is. Mm -hmm. And then I'd love to talk about the mystical components to this because the hypnagogic or the hypnopompic state, which is this state, I think is a profoundly mystical state. And so the fear that comes is partially because of a physiological thing. So here we go. The brain must paralyze the body just before REM starts and just after REM ends so that while REM sleep arrives and the neofrontal cortex is just like lighting up because we are recalling everything we did that day. Because while we're in that state, the mind is, in fact, looking at all of the data, discarding some of it, turning some of it into short-term memory, that's happening in REM. And so if the body didn't paralyze itself, if the brain did not paralyze the body, we would move about. In fact, synambulism, sleepwalking, is that. The paralysis is not strong enough to keep the cortex firing from moving the body, right? So that's what that is. So... In the natural order of things, the paralysis comes in, the sleep gates open up, the sleep gates close, paralysis ends, you wake up all is well. Sometimes, though, you begin to wake up before the paralysis ends. Mm -hmm. And now you're in this liminal space. 
you'll feel like you're asleep and dreaming and you'll sort of feel like you're awake and conscious both you almost always will be i air quote this dreaming that you're in bed now imagine the perception capacity right go back to our earlier conversation for a moment the waking mind that inhibits these energetic perceptions is mostly asleep. Mostly is key here. But it's asleep enough to allow for in-the-room perceptions of our multidimensional consciousness. And I believe that makes this an incredible state of availability to these perceptions that are just mind-blowing and profound but your body is paralyzed you cannot move but you're not awake going oh my god i can't move you're half asleep you're half awake you can't move you feel these sensations in the room like beings or entities or other because the perception is opened up and you can't move because you're paralyzed i believe that the boogeyman consciousness is more that the body is paralyzed and people collapse the multidimensional sensitivity with nefarious danger because they can't breathe, they can't move. It feels like someone is sitting on their chest. So if I had a feeling that someone was sitting on my chest but could perceive multidimensional beings, I'm going to put those two things together and now there's a succubus. Now, is there? Is there not? I like to believe that there isn't, that these dark qualities don't exist. That might be my either naivete or wish. Um, but I do believe that the, the perception is mystical and multidimensional. And I also believe this fearful I can't move experience can be transcended. I knew a guy who did this. And after I heard the story, I, I, I said, I, I need to talk to you. You need to come to my office and I need to interview. And somewhere there's a, a video cassette from a recorder that probably doesn't exist anymore, you know, <laughs> from 20 years ago, where he told me. He had this sense that this ugly, dark energy wasn't what it really was. So what he did was forced himself in those terrified moments to just relax, surrender, breathe, chill, not fight against it. It took about a year, but he transformed the experience into a vivid relationship with a beautiful light being of incredible loving energy that interacted with him in an almost erotic sort of way, energetically, that I think <laughs> was all along what it was going on, but the paralysis created fearful images in his mind. And so the night terror at the highest level of this as a sleep disorder is just so brutal and so frightening um, and so frequent for the dreamer. If this happens on a regular basis, it's exhausting and brutal. And it can. It can generate PTSD and other anxiety responses, including the responses that happen when sleep is interrupted and you live a, in a body that has never really experienced uh, the deep sleep that is necessary for our health. Um, it can be brutal. It's a, I think it's a profoundly misunderstood state. Isn't a night terror kind of a little bit of the opposite where they're almost sleepwalking? 
and they're kind of sleepwalking, but they'll get up and walk around, but they're kind of still in the dream and half out of the dream, and they're kind of confusing reality with that. No. Well, no. I mean, from a from an academic perspective, a night terror is paralysis. Okay. Sleep paralysis, night terrors are synonymous. And if you went to a, a, a you know a sleep lab, and and you know were you know asked you know inquired about this, it would be sleep paralysis, night terror, same thing. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure what you're referring to, but if someone is moving about, yeah. they're not paralyzed, so they're right. not having a terror of paralysis. They might have some confusion about what you know where their body is. Can sleepwalking become something that's terrifying? You know. There's a lot of, I don't know what the word would be, atypical human experiences that tend to be stasis oriented, but the fearful observer will get worried. Meaning a sleepwalker sleepwalks the way they sleepwalk. Like they'll have a a style, Mm -hmm. right? It's unlikely to accelerate. Now in the movie version of it, the sleepwalker walks off the cliff in the third act, right? Yeah. But in, in real life, it's like if you go to the cabinet and open it up and then you go back to bed, that's about where it's gonna go. If your sleepwalking is a little more agitated, that's your you know, sort of sleepwalking milieu. Um, so it it is it is not common for something like that to suddenly dramatically accelerate or worsen though stress can create any you know any circumstance to to you know aggravate um but it's not something i would ever expect to happen all right so earlier you were saying that during rem you're basically processing the day's events and deciding what to keep and what to discard yeah. Yeah. Can you see the future during your dreams or prophesize the future mm. in symbols? You know, it's funny right now. I'm, I'm working on the forward to a book that's coming out. I think next year Scribner's is putting out a mystical book from the 18 cent, you know, hundreds, 1846, mm. I think that's all about prophesying dreams. And, and so I'm looking at the history and in the, uh, uh, in the spiritualist movement of the 19th century, this idea of prophesizing and gazing and predicting the future was really rising up in popular consciousness. Um, my experience of precognitive dreaming and hearing this experience reported has been interesting because I've been talking to people about their dreams since I was a teenager and I'm 58. So that's 40 years of talking to people about their dreams. And I had an experience of the level of precognitive dreams, how many I would meet, you know, you know, how many stories would I hear over the course of a year of, of, and it was, I don't know if rare would be the right word, but like 20 years ago, it was rare for me to hear about, Oh, I precognitively dream. It happened. And often when I would meet somebody like that, it would be like, oh, yeah, it runs in my family. I have it. My mother has it. It's not common, not uncommon for this to be a powerful way that people tap into their intuition. And again, I think it connects back to the waking mind that is not intuitive is asleep. So the the dimensionality that opens up during sleep and dreams allows, I think, the psyche to transcend time because the idea might be, you know, fourth dimensional consciousness is where time goes in both directions. 
that we're in three-dimensional consciousness. Our God consciousness is 5D, but 4D is where we go in between that allows us to move forward and backwards in what we call time. That's what an intuitive does. A psychic taps up into that information so they can see backwards and forwards. Um, and so certainly in the dream state, when we are free to do this, that's what's happening. And so I used to hear this only as, yeah, it runs in my family and it happens all the time and here's what I do with it. And somewhere around 2011, which by the way, as an astrologer, I will tell you when the planet that rules dreams, uh, Neptune moved into his ruling sign of Pisces, the sign that rules dreams, it was kind of crazy. Now, suddenly, people are telling me all the time they're having precognitive dreams. And it's now, if I go into a, a room and do a dream circle or a workshop somewhere, and there are a bunch of people in it, several of them will report having dreams of events, of things to come. Sometimes it's as simple as having a dream of a, of a scenario, and then a week later being in that scenario. You know, I'm, I don't know why this example strikes me. I'm still stuck in my mind. Someone once told me, oh, yes, I had a dream of sitting in a circle. And five days later, I was sitting in a circle of people. I was like, oh, my God, I dreamed this. Right. So I think the experience of precognitive dreaming can happen at a high sophisticated level. With more information sort of revealed that's of stuff that has not yet come. But I think it's happening for more and more and more people in a more pedestrian way in these subtle but intuitive, you know, remarkable moments. And, and why not? I, I believe in everything that's mystical about us is much, much, much more available to us when we're sleeping. I recently had a near-death experience or guest. He was from Zambia, my first guest from there. And, wow. he, and he told me, that he had a dream, he saw a black mamba snake in the dream, and I guess this is what they do culturally, that a dream affected him enough where he decided to fast for several days. And then about a week later, he somehow fell out, fell into some sickness where he, I guess, basically died and had an NDE and then eventually came back. I love that. What a glorious way that all of his psyche just sort of collided in. You know, I think it would be superstitious to say the dream caused this. Right. Right. That's that's where we get into old sort of superstitious cultural perspectives of dreams. The dream of the state caused this event. It's like, but yeah, I, I believe in consciousness unfolding, which means that everything is happening at the same time and everything is reflecting everything else. So the, the disease, the NDE, the fact that he would survive is the thing that's coming over the horizon. And the dream is like the first peak of the wave. Mm -hmm. And so clearly this is someone who's more deeply attuned and more broadly connected to the whatever his multidimensional access is. Mm -hmm. And the wave he rode that maybe took three weeks to play out or however long the first hint of it showed up in his psyche through the dream. And snakes, of course, are the symbol in dream consciousness of great change and transformation because they shed their skins. We have this, you know, every third grader in the world learns that sh snakes shed their skin, right? So that idea 
as a symbol means the growth is happening underneath the surface behind the scenes and that when it's ready to come the new transformation has arrived the old skin dies falls off and you know goes away and so that's a perfect symbol for change and transformation if this is a black snake and i'm assuming but some sort of a potentially poisonous yeah, i didn't know let's just for the sake of the fantasy it's a poisonous snake <laughs> which then means death is is akin to the change and transformation that the snake represents because in fact this is indeed a black snake and perhaps you know perhaps dangerous while we're on symbols can you give us a few other symbols that are common and what they mean well you know there's certainly the falling flying thing which is one of the biggest two um you know that are in the top you know five or six symbols i think are interesting because we we are born into gravity and gravity is the sort of law of this dimension of the third dimension and if i got my quantum physics right not a law in other dimensions we are the dimension of gravity so our bodies are in gravity but our psyches our souls uh our our etheric bodies are not and gravity weighs us down of course it's what keeps us here and that's a good thing but now we're in dreamland so now we have to symbolize things we have to interpret we can't just say gravity is a law that keeps us tethered to the earth what is then gravity what could gravity mean symbolically and like maybe because i'm a psychologist and i'm interested in people's insides I think of gravity as that which holds us down, that which weighs us down. Maybe shame is a good one. Human beings are riddled with shame and shame is added on and it weighs us down. So dreams of flying, I think are moments of aspiration because we are free of all that might weigh us down. Shame, anxiety, self-doubt, you know, other people, dramatic situations, and we fly and rise above it. We're dreaming of that nothing's really impacting our true nature, that we can rise above, right? Falling is interesting because we're born into gravity. Therefore, we have one built-in sort of fearful danger, the danger of falling. Falling can kill us. And so it's, in fact, I like to say it's the only fear that's pre-installed is falling. And loud noises. But I think that's because you might fall after you hear a loud noise. I don't know. <laughs> At any rate, other fears we add into the process. Our humanity creates that there are, you know, traumas and challenges with being human and interacting with people and families. But we are, you know, truly, truly not that. And we can rise above that in the flying dream or when we're in a falling dream. Now we're in the sort of the opposite of the impact of gravity, the fact that we are not in control of, of stuff in the way that we have the illusion of control. And falling isn't really so much about the fall, it's about the fear of the sudden stop. Hmm. Falling's fine. If you just keep falling infinitely, hmm. you know, yay, you're moving. You know, it's the it's where you stop and how you stop that's dangerous, right? Yeah. So then the emotional symbolism there is I'm not in control. So I'm, I'm frightened about where I'm going to land. I would say one of my favorite recurring sort of dream themes that are ubiquitously human, but not as common as, say, falling or flying or being chased, being chased, by the way, anything, whether it's a gun, you know, or an assailant, is just, you know, a stress dream image that says you're mirroring in your dream state the stress of running, outrunning, you know, the 
you know, waking life stressors, right? Uh, pretty straightforward there. But teeth falling out. I, I had that dream for 10 years in my mid-20s to my early 30s. But think about teeth. What do they do for us? One is they aid in sustenance and, and self-care, right? We process our food. So there's a connection of teeth and self-nurturance. We attract love with our teeth. We reveal them in a smile and other people smile and mm, we connect and we spread the love through smile, right? Um, even like we're not really snarling anymore as human animals, but we certainly do. The animal kingdom reveals teeth in an aggressive way to protect yourself. So now we've got, we've got love and nurturance and protection. So losing your teeth is an insecurity dream of feeling like you won't have the ability to sustain love and protect. And of course, because the teeth are located in the mouth, communication is almost always part and parcel to such a dream where issues of communication might be what sparked the dream. Challenges in finding your voice or, you know, um, challenges in, you know, being taken seriously what might show up as teeth falling out dreams. Sometimes I'll have dreams where there'll be people in my dream I don't recall ever meeting. And is my brain just manufacturing that or is it I saw someone the day and I just didn't pay attention to them? Yeah, you know, this is where this is where me as half scientist, half mystic, you know, will dip my toe out of science and into mysticism because the scientists will say, no, random brain firing, random brain firing images, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I call bullshit. No, I I don't believe that because I believe in the possibility of this crazy way that I know we're all connected. I know it because I live it. I've, I've devoted my life to opening this instrument up, my body, to, to have the most profound experience of what a body can do. Right. So in that regard, I believe this notion that the dream state is wildly more profound than we can possibly imagine or know. Maybe not imagine. I think, you know, your audience is probably good at imagining all of the possibilities <laughs> of the mystical implications of dreaming. Um, so, yeah, I do just believe that everything mystical is possible in this dream state. So um, why not then? are the people you're meeting in the dream people who exist? Maybe they're even people having a dream about meeting some dude yeah. doing whatever you're doing in the dream. Like, why not? It's certainly <laughs> possible, right? It's possible in the mystical side of the equation that I live on. It's not possible on the academic side, but I think, you know, academia and science is filled with hubris. You know, there's so much beautiful knowledge about brain chemistry today. And the scientific community says, this is what the brain is doing. Therefore, there is no God. Therefore, there is no mystical dream. Therefore, there is no numinous connection. It's like, dude, you just proved that there is. And now you're showing <laughs> us what the brain is doing while it's happening. And you think it means it's not happening. And it's like, honey, watch that hubris. That's going to I'm gonna kick you in the ass one day because I think it proves the idea that there's just this mystical possibility. I've even had the thought, the real cogent thought, that even wild landscapes that are impossible 
to sort of imagine as earthly places. Maybe even they exist in the universe, you know? That when we are in dark and scary and terrifying places, that they may be places that exist in other, you know, other places in this universe. Why not? Makes sense to me. Can't be proven, but it makes sense in the mystical ways or the ways that we try to codify something that is ultimately a mystery. All right. Nightmares. Do you think they're good for you or bad for you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Good, 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 good. Nightmares alert us that something in our unconscious is needing our attention, right? In the binary of we're either sort of opened up to possibility, feeling love in our hearts and moving into the world, you know, uh, in an open manner, or we're frightened. We're saying no, we're scared, we're in shame, we're in a trauma being healed, right? And nightmares tell us that something like that important is happening below the surface of the unconscious. Now, it could be a tiny thing. It could be the nightmare shows up because you had a stressful day and then you just, you know, there's angst in there and the nightmare allows you to process the darker human qualities at a much, you know, juicier level. Um, And because I'm a psychologist that teaches people how to do shadow work and self-investigation and dreaming and dream work would be one of the primary tools to do that. I am wildly interested in that people have nightmares and that they work with them and that they pay attention when the nightmare comes up uh, because it might have some really juicy value in a, in a self-investigation process to say, okay, well, what is troubling me right now? Where might I be frightened of life? Where, I, where might I be holding myself back because a wound in my psyche is keeping me from being my most powerful and effective, and the nightmare is a moment to sort of pay attention. All right, since you consider yourself a mystical psychologist, Were you interpreting dreams or doing anything mystical before your education? Oh, decades. Oh, you know, I got my my master's and doctorate in, you know, like when I was 38 and 40-ish. I can't, you know, in my late 30s, early 40s, I was doing my doctorate. But I was interpreting dreams as a teenager in high school. This Hmm. this was a God-given gift experience that rose up out of my teenage years, my my mom was getting a, a master's in social work. And so Freud's interpretation of dreams showed up on the bookshelf one day. And I was like, damn, that looks interesting. And I, I was about 15 and I picked it up and I read it. You know, I got it to the extent that my 15-year-old mind could absorb Freud. Freud was actually a very good writer. Like Freud, the reason why we all know Freud and his version of the unconscious and his perspective on dreams is so vibrant is because he was popular. He wrote books that regular people read and he was funny and extemporaneous and he was a good writer. So, um, you know, I read that book and I was like, I'm going to try this. When kids in my school would say, I had a crazy dream last night, I would say, tell me what you dream. Let me see if I have something to say about it. And in those interactions, profound things would happen. I would listen to the dream and I would in fact have things to say. I don't think I knew what I was talking about in you know those early years. Many, many years would have to go by before I really understood what I was doing when I'm hearing a dream and offering an interpretation. But I did figure it out eventually. In my late 30s, I did a television show on the Sci-Fi Network for for a bit. We did a 
65 shows. It, it was actually, we, we'd see, we did a whole season. It was canceled in three months. It was like the best and the worst thing that ever happened to me at the same time. So I was asked by the woman who was my manager at the time, you got to figure out what it is you do so you can teach it to people. And uh, my first reaction was I cried. I was like, ah, I don't know how this works. And I was like, yes, you do, Michael. Just watch while it's happening. And here's what I watched. What I noticed is that dreams are just (laughs) stories. And they're stories that are told in the language of symbol. So I'm just hearing the story, but I'm paying attention to the symbols of the story. Every symbol that tells the story has a meaning that's universal. Meaning the most people would think the same thing about what this thing means just based on what it is, what its use is, what its essence is. So I, when I'm listening to a dream, part of my expanded mind, the channeled mind, the the mind that is in me, through me, but not really in me, through me, that connects to... I mean, this is why I'm mystical, kiddo, because when I'm talking about dreams, it's a mystical experience. I don't know where this stuff is coming through from, but it comes through me in a way that I'm listening to the story, but not the words (coughs) you're saying, but the universal sensibility behind the symbols that make the story up. So if, and the, the, the simplest example, and the one that I put in my first book is if I'm walking on a path in the woods, I come upon a snake, it frightens me, and I wake up, right? So I hear you say, I'm on a path in the woods, and I think, okay, this is our walk through life. Not our social life. You'd be driving if it was a dream about your social life or your work life or your community life. It's the intimate path that you're on, just you and the woods, Woods means we're really in kind of our natural organic place. We're not in high-minded thought. We're in our natural embodied sort of thoughts about my path through life. As we've already mentioned, snakes are a symbol of change and transformation. So I hear snake and I go, change and transformation. And then, you know, it wakes you up, right? This is a simple, you know, two-image dream. To illustrate the point, though, that I'm not knowing things that you don't know I'm just able to process that information so fast that I'm able to reflect a story about the dream, like the story about the story, immediately back to the dreamer. And because I'm operating in universal principles that are coming through me as a channeled experience, I mean, in your audience, I could talk about this. It's coming through me as divine wisdom that's not mine. Now, it is mine because I have access to it every single time I want to open my mouth and talk about a dream. In fact, all you have to do is ask me a question and open out it comes. So I followed this throughout my teenage years and into my young adult life. And by the time I was 28 years old, I did my first workshop in Los Angeles teaching people about dream interpretation. You know, so going to grad school in my late 30s was really just a, a sort of like, my life as fun and as successful as it is. I was in the entertainment industry and the business side of things. I was doing really well. And on the side, I was exploring my personal spiritual path, but also what I could teach and share. And that's why I went to grad school, not really to become a psychologist per se, but I wanted, I wanted to teach about spirituality. And I thought if I don't know a lot about the human existence and the conditions that happen in the head and the heart as a, as a good psychologist would, how can I really help people? So it was important to me to have deep knowledge 
of how the human psyche works in terms of what was available and knowable at this time in the human development. But I never intended to be, you know, just a standard old psychotherapist. In fact, I got a lot of flack in, in grad school when people knew that I didn't want to be a psychotherapist. They were like, but you'd be so good. It's like, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> I would assume in academia, you're not really supposed to interpret people's problems or oh dreams. You're supposed to give them, let God, them yes. interpret Holy it for themselves. Shit. If therapists um, watch what I do when I'm working, yeah, they're, they'd, they'd be horrified. And, 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 and they might say, oh, you should never tell someone what their dream means. And I would say to them, you're right. You should never do that. <laughs> but I can't not do that. That is my God-given gift. I would never not do that. And I, I moved through some moments like that. I remember a woman who was actually was wound up being one of my dissertation chair people. She was a Jungian. She was a Jungian analyst. Um, kind of cool, kind of gifted. I remember saying a dream to her um, a year after a class where in the class I mentioned a dream and she remembered the dream. I was like, this woman's good, right? And I think she liked and respected me, but she was a little baffled about this thing. I tried to sort of explain what I do. And she said to me in class, she said, oh, and she was, she was, I think German, she had an accent, which made this sound even more awful to hear. It's like, oh, you're like a fortune teller. And I was like, oh, ow, ow, ouch, sure. So yes, it, it is accurate that no one should really tell someone else what their dream means because dreams are sacred, they're intimate, they happen inside of somebody. And really what a therapist should do is just create a space and, and sort of, tip little ideas in, keep the conversation going and get the dreamer to perseverate and uh, make associations. And that's what would happen in a therapist's office if the therapist had, you know, uh, uh, the desire to do dream work. Um, and yeah, most people should not do what I do because they will project. It's one of the things about having a gift that comes to me through a kind of channeling of divine wisdom that gets operated the instant I am asked a question about a dream. And so the words that come through me are not coming through my personal funnel, where if you have a dream about your mother, <laughs> that I'm going to interpret it based on my relationship <laughs> with my mother, which I used to see all the time. I could see this at 25 sitting in dream interpretation workshops where I like I knew I wasn't projecting like this and I watched it happen. It's like, oh, my God, she's projecting. Oh, my God, he's projecting. And I don't do that because it's channeled wisdom. So my personal associations are not even in the mix. One of the things that is a challenge for me when I'm doing workshops or teaching or even guesting like this especially if it's a show where I work with callers, right? And, and people hear what I do. I don't want anyone to ever think that what I do is good dream work for you because it's not unless you're having a session with me. And then the session is part of your divine unfolding. And then my interpretation is perfect for you because your psyche attracted me to share my gift with you. Right. So I believe in that 
consciousness unfolding. No dreamer didn't have me in front of them if, if I wasn't the one who was supposed to deliver some information to them. And I trust that as well. I completely get that. I'm sure the American Psychological Association wouldn't want you to accept patients in that way. But Oh, God, yeah. Listen, there was a, there was a, a woman who knew what I did was involved in the International Association for the Study of Dreaming. And based on her knowledge of me and her, her um, collegial sensibility, she invited me to do um, a workshop at this. And I was going to do a workshop on teaching therapists how to be more engaged in dream work from this universal perspective. Not to do what I do, but to not just say, mm-hmm, and what do you think that means, right? By teaching therapists that they could consider the universal meaning behind an image that might come up and help. I mean, I thought it was a brilliant idea for a class, you know? and so did she. Then five weeks later, four weeks later, I get a hit from some bigger muckety-muck guy who says, in order for me to get this workshop on the gear, that I have to present to the committee my academic justification for how I know what is universal and what isn't. And I said, thank you very much. Have a lovely conference and I'll see you never. <laughs> it's like, and that's fine with me. I do not need to be sort of accepted by the greater psychological community because that's not what my vision is. My vision is to help people. So wow. I don't give a shit what they say as long as there are people in front of me who want to hear what I have to say and who want to be inspired uh, uh, to, 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 to enrich their relationship with their dreams. That's why I'm here on the planet. Since you practice psychology, interpretation, dream analysis, probably completely different from 99% of the other people in your field, hmm. is there any legal problems that you encounter because you're not doing maybe what be considered the standard rules of practicing? Yeah, no, because I'm not a psychotherapist. So I'm okay. not doing therapy, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not engaged in therapeutic alliances with human beings in a room. And that's really the sort of the, the lynch, I don't know what the right word would be, but the sort of the thing <laughs> in the world of psychotherapy is that there is, there does have to be universal protective measures about how therapists work with with patients. This is why it's good if your therapist has a degree and, yeah. and maybe even a license, right? Um, and is trained in, in a way to not bring themselves fully into the room. Like in the older psychodynamic psychotherapy model that's kind of old fashioned, the therapist wasn't in the room at all mm. other than bodily with an occasional, hmm, say more about that and how to make you feel. Now, the value in that is then the patient pro projects everything onto the blank screen of the therapist, and that's how the, the work takes place. It takes freaking years. <laughs> if I do dream interpretation work or coaching work or, or work with people in the room like this, I get to be fully present in the room, and it's more of a coaching experience no one is coming and having a, a therapeutic relationship where i have to be you know very contained and that's why i don't do it and i've done it in the past and i stopped doing it because the muscle to highly contain someone's emotional state in the room 
is such an important muscle for a therapist. And mine was very flaccid because I didn't do it enough. So I stopped doing it because it wasn't a good idea. And when I did, Jeffrey, I, I practiced. I mean, I was still me, but I was a therapist. I didn't yeah. bring the mysticism of the woo-woo into that room. But I want to bring that into all rooms that I'm in so I don't do that work anymore. And anyone who comes near me is coming for the, for the mystical um, stuff. All right, since you have a gift of kind of like channeling or divine channeling, is there something in your life that happened to you that was a catalyst to give you this gift, like maybe a a minor NDE or something mm, that happened to you? Wouldn't that be sexy for you, Jeffrey? <laughs> <laughs> um, and no, the answer is absolutely no, I'm afraid. What it what what is accurate, though, uh, which is not sexy as an NDE, would be that I think I was born into sort of this enormous energy that I live fully in now, but I was born to really traumatizing parents. And so my childhood, the crucible of my childhood was really traumatizing. It was unsafe. Um, there was violence. Um, there was, uh, you know, uh, um, cruelty, verbal cruelty uh, from my dad um, and chaos and nuttiness from my mom. Um, and it is accurate that, huh, the healing journey that I began early, I mean, by the time you know, I was 15 years old when I came out as gay and went into therapy on my own steam. And from that moment on, everything was about healing the traumas of my childhood. But what's interesting about that is that along the way, I was also sort of diving more deeply into what this body can do. Right. And all of us are in these magical bodies that are amazing. Um, but if we're stuck in our minds and we're thinking about yesterday and tomorrow, we never know the juice of what's in today. And a channeling experience is very present in the present moment. There's no yesterday. There's no tomorrow in that. And so I think my story was that I was born into a kind of open, very connected sensibility with an enormous energy that's always dialed in. And I got immediately squeezed into a tiny, 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 tiny little box by my ancestry and my parentage. And by dismantling that box slowly over time, I developed a relationship with the energy that is ultimately this channeling of divine wisdom. It didn't happen fast. I could always interpret a dream, and I think I was always channeling wisdom when I was doing it, but it took decades before I could work with that energy as if it were the mystical tool that it is. And so my, my journey to this openness was a slow burn rather than a sudden blow open. All right, I'm going to change gears with you because we're almost out of time. Um, I was looking at your YouTube channel and it's mostly about astrology. And yeah. I don't know if you can give predictions on a global scale or you do it <laughs> on a personal scale, but can you give us anything of what you've seen for 2022? Yeah, I can. And in fact, I did at the end of 2019. I First of all, I'm more astrologer in the world in some ways than dream expert. In fact, my podcast is half uh, astrology and half dreams. It's really not half. It's 80% astrology and about 20% <laughs> dreams. Sometimes I think there might need to be two podcasts, but who, we'll see. Um, the podcast is new. Um so 
In 2020, the planet Pluto and the planet Saturn and the planet Jupiter all collided into the same space in the sign of Capricorn. Okay. Pluto is the planet we understand as death, change and transformation all the way down to a cellular level and regeneration like the phoenix. Saturn is the planet of reckoning, karma, lessons. But he's also the planet that builds or built social structures, structures like banking and housing. And I'm pointing that out because when Pluto moved, sign of the planet of death, moved into Capricorn, the sign of all of these structures, that's when the recession hit too big to fail happened, right? That was 2007 and eight. Pluto right. moved into Capricorn, beginning the toppling of the old world order. So at the end of 2019, you know, me and my pals, uh, colleagues of astrology, were like, oh my God. And the language I used out in the world in presentations was change and transformation like we've never seen before. And then the host would say, well, what do you mean? It's like, like we've never seen before. And I would get very... <laughs> So when January of 2020 came and Pluto, the planet of death, Saturn, the planet of reckoning and Jupiter, the planet of expansion. And by the way, global travel, mm -hmm. this is key because January 2020, Australia was on fire. The president of the United States was being impeached and a virus popped up out of China. Jupiter, the planet of global travel, brought that experience around the world in a global pandemic. And the entire year of 2020 had Saturn, the Reckoner, and Pluto, the Deathbringer, crossing paths with each other in what's called a conjunction. They were at the same place in the sky. So that was 2020. 2021 had the planet Saturn, Reckoning, and Uranus, sudden unexpected events that raise our consciousness, but also the planet that operates with lightning and changes that knock us on our ass. These two planets were in a 90 degree angle with each other, a square is pure conflict and obstacle. And so you had the reckoning planet of Saturn and the awakening anything can happen and you know knock you on your butt planet in conflict geometry. That was 2021. Lots of little unstable changes that weren't cataclysmic like 2020, but consistent and constant. And we were just constantly in more. And that was 2020. So what's really, really interesting about 2022 is there are no planetary transits. The planets have spread just enough that the geometry that they made in 21 and 20 is in the rearview mirror. And they don't bang into each other again at all this year. And that is rare. So it's a real sense of aftermath. 20 and 21 was the storm. 2021 is the moment where we sort of pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, see that everything has changed and begin to individually figure out who we are and how we want to be in this new uh, world experience that we're moving into. I think some of the years ahead have some more potential cataclysmic change. There are planets that are getting ready to change signs, and that always brings a big shift on Earth. And there are several of them happening all at once in like 23, 24, and 25. Um, and I, those years are going to be intense with, with events on the planet that reflect big change. In fact, when the planet Neptune moves into Aries in 2025, 20, I think, Aries is the sign of aggression and war. And Neptune uh -huh. is the planet of religious ideologies. <laughs> 
So oh. I'm a little nervous in the United <laughs> States when the planet of religious ideology moves into the sign of war. <laughs> but that's a couple of years ahead. Meanwhile, in 2022, we have the, some planets, not some, all of the planets, the outer planets, the big ones that, that make the most sort of social movement um, happen are touching what's called the nodes of the moon. The nodes of the moon are points in space that create the eclipses. They, they have to do with the moon's orbit crossing the paths of the, of the Earth's orbit. And so when the alignment is just right every six months, we have an eclipse, right? So those nodes of the moon have a sort of a placement that we would recognize zodiacally. Um, and the north node represents the future that we're all moving toward. And the south node represents the past that we're all moving away from. And there are big planetary transits to the nodes of the moon. These are collective transits, meaning not change and, and, and events that like angles make, but like a sense that the collective is moving in this new way because everything has changed. And there are going to be elements and energies this year that reflect how that's going to feel. And, and the major one that sort of takes place almost all of spring and into fall hmm. is the planet Uranus, the great awakener that wants us to rise up to higher levels of consciousness, is going to cross over the north node of the moon, which is this point that means the future that we are creating. That makes 2021 interesting in that we're all sort of moving forward, trying to figure out how we're going to line up with this, you know, new world. And we're kind of being led by the planet that doesn't care how he wakes us up. Uranus is like, you're going to wake up. You, uh, this is my standard joke. You're going to win the lottery and you're going to lose your legs in a boating accident. Because he doesn't care how we wake up. So the North Node is moving into a new sign this month which makes a difference about how we look to move forward. Like last year and the year before, the North Node, the future was in Gemini, the twins, which is the sign where polarization <laughs> was sort of invented. And boy, have we been through polarization hell these last two years. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that the North Node is in the sign that can either be, we can speak to each other and have different views successfully, or we could be polarized. And so we had that both. I mean, the polarization is what you saw on the news and the media, but in the world, there was also great conversations and great shift and change because people started dialoguing. When we move, the North Node moves into Taurus. Taurus is the sign, one of the signs ruled by Venus, the planet of love. Taurus is the inventor of the earth herself. Taurus is the energy that created form. Aries dives in first and says, I am here, I am. And Taurus comes next and says, well, where are we? I'm here, I'm in a body, I'm in earth. And it's pleasurable, it's lovely, it's loving. It's a Venus consciousness. So we have the capacity to move towards more love, but there's always a shadow. What's the shadow of Taurus is immovability, stubbornness, an unwillingness to change or go, right? So... We will have an interest. There's also many, many, many other planets that hit the nodes at different times that will reflect how it's going to feel to be alive on the planet next year or this year, I guess. We're in 2022. We're no longer next year. Right. But I would say this leading energy that says what 
what is guiding us to sudden and unexpected events. Your honors, I think we can have a lot of sudden and unexpected events that help us line ourselves into what are we going to choose? Are we going to choose love or are we going to choose immobility or immovability? Um, and nothing like the changes and transformations of 2020 or even last year. Thank you for that. And I want to support you. So can you please tell us how to find your podcast, how to find sure. your books, how to find your Absolutely. websites and all that stuff? You know, it's really simple to go to michaellennox.com because everything is there. michaellennox.com has a page on my podcast and the podcast can even be listened to on the website, but it's available everywhere podcasts. It comes out every Sunday night uh, at midnight Pacific time or one of those times. It comes out Sunday night. Um, but I also teach classes in consciousness and self-investigation, expanding your spiritual practice. That's also a tab on the website. Um, I put out a video um, every morning called Red Robe Astrology on Instagram, Dr. Lennox Dreams, D-R-L-E-N-N-O-X Dreams, or you can go to michaellennox.com and find the Instagram button. Um, they're fun because I give, you know, a little minute-long tidbit about what the energy of the day is going to feel like. Um, but that's the best place to sort of reach out and, and find mm -hmm. out uh, about my schedule for astrology readings. You can figure it out on michaellennox.com. It's all there. Also, your books, can they find them on your website or yes, they go to they're Amazon? There as well. or... Yeah, I mean, it's anywhere books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore. Uh, if you have one still alive in your neighborhood, support your <laughs> local bookseller. Um, but yes, michaellennox.com has links to uh, all three of my dream books. Is there anything else that you're working on that you want us to know about? Well, you know, I, I'm always teaching classes and, um, you know, so if, if you're in, if, if, if how I sound to your audience, like sounds like that's an interesting person to sit through four weeks of self-investigation classes. Um, um, other than that, I'm, I'm working on so much behind the scenes of just expanding the business. Like technically <laughs> it's, 2022 is going to be sort of standard issue for my, you know, readings and classes. But um, yeah, the behind the scenes growth is, especially with a social media driven and digital technology driven business. Yeah. A lot of work of that yeah. nature. But yeah, I love teaching. The, te the classes that I teach is probably the most joyful passion that I uh, have. I also have a dream circle uh, once a month. They're small, intimate gatherings on Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific time. It's only about 10 people, uh, so they sell out pretty quick, and I only do one a month. But that information's on my website as well. This is people who gather. They share one dream each. I spend time interpreting them, but also offer a kind of group interpretation of what if every dream was yours. Hmm. Dream circles are really fun. Wow. Yeah, it sounds cool. All right, Michael. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Oh, yes. One is certainly, I think we got this. Hmm. I really do believe in humanity. I believe in our ability to rise up. Now, I think it might take us a few generations <laughs> to get there. <laughs> um, we may not be alive to see it, but I really, really, really believe in our capacity to rise up into a higher level of caring for all humans on the planet and expanding consciousness in such a way that we restore some level of, of what can become peace for humanity. Well, thank you for that message. And Michael, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate you and I wish you the best. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Have a great day.
Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.